Welcome to the Bell & Gossip Podcast, live from the 2020 AHR Expo. I'm your host, Amanda Holloway, joined by Griffin Goda, and throughout the show, we'll have some fantastic guests and topics to share with you in this series, including several of our manufacturers, reps, and xylem experts. You'll get insights into the trends they're seeing in the HVAC and plumbing industry. Enjoy the show! We're here at uh, AHR with Dave Everhart and Dan Watkins from Bornquist. Um, why don't you guys just introduce yourselves and what you do for Bornquist? Hi, I'm Dave Everhart. Um, I've been with Bornquist for a long time, and I'm the president <laughs> now. Uh, I'm Dan Watkins. Um, I've been with Bornquist uh, less than Dave, 18 years, so that'll put it in perspective a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm uh, the uh, HVAC sales manager. Yes, Dan could be my son. <laughs> oh, gosh. So how long have you uh, you guys been Bell & Gossett reps? We've been reps since 1937. Okay, so one of the first? We were one of the first spin-off organizations. Our founder, George Bornquist, was uh, originally working with Bell & Gossett and then spent off to be a, a rep firm. I think we're the second or third um, official B&G rep. That's wow. pretty great. And you're based out of the Chicagoland area, right? That's your service area, basically? Yep, Chicago area and about a mile and a half from Bell & Gossett. Yeah, so oh yeah, from the we're neighbors. Grove yeah. <laughs> facility, for sure. Right, we take care of the greater Chicagoland area and we actually have two offices. There's our office in Chicago and then we have an office in the Quad Cities, uh, more specifically in East Moline. And that's our Sandberg operation, and they cover the western part of the state, as well as going further south and um, into the northwest corner. There's some pretty, you know, Chicago skyline is pretty famous. There's lots of iconic buildings there. Um, what are you seeing as sort of as the trend in Chicago as you know, time goes on in terms of what people are, are looking for in their buildings now? They're looking for efficiency. Okay. But also to be unique, so not talking specific about HVAC market, but just the buildings in general. You know, they, Chicago has a skyline, right? So, you know, people, when they're building a building, they want to create something that's going to be unique and stand out and, you know, be, be identifiable in that skyline. Okay. And a lot of those buildings are built with a design-build mentality, so it's not something that an engineer goes and lays out the project and covers all the details. Instead, they'll start the project and then they'll hire the contract to do a lot of the engineering and finish up the uh, project. And uh, speed of construction is very important because there are so many projects underway at the same time. Yeah. You think that's gonna, that trend is going to continue in 2020 in terms of just like the construction market is exploding? And I think it's going to continue. The, uh, the design build that they've mentioned, it's that's kind of ramping up more and more. I mean, we, we used to see it was all very traditional, plan and spec, you know, jobs would get designed, go out to bid, contractor would get awarded it, and they would install whatever was put on the drawing. And now it's, you know, more and more, they're, they're pulling contractors in on the front end, having them work with it, and, and they do a lot of the design work. And it's just, it's trending more and more design build versus the traditional plan and spec method. So how does that change what you do? For a certain project well we've always worked really well with the engineers getting them to schedule our equipment specify it 
And back when plan and spec was kind of the way it would go, worked out well because a lot of contractors, they just look at what was on the drawing. That's what they bid. That's what they put in because now they, they don't have any responsibility, right? They said, I, I installed what you told me to. And if it doesn't work, it's not our problem. Well, now that that contractor is becoming the engineer of record, right? That's what design build essentially means is engineer kind of does a preliminary design, but now the contractor is taking over. They're going to do the final design and they're actually stamping the drawings as the engineer of record. So now they don't really care as much about what's on that drawing to begin with because they own it. So if they didn't like that, they're going to they're going to change it and do what they want. And so so now you know, the focus is a little bit more on the contractors and their in-house engineering, right? We got to work with them to make sure that once they take apart what an engineering firm put on the initial plan, that they're taking it apart and still applying it to products that we care. Mm-hmm. And how has Bill & Gossett sort of helped support that, Help support you in that endeavor in terms of going out and working with the contractor differently? Well, uh, B&G has done a lot of support with their system-wise software to make it easier for everybody to use. Uh, it's a piece of software that's constantly changing and getting better and uh, giving people the ability to look at equipment selections from, uh, from a different way. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be an expert to interpret the information. It's all laid out very nicely. All the CAD drawings are accessible, the Revit drawings, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, also, uh, B&G continues to develop new products. Um, here at the show, we have the Double Volute 80 series pumps out at the booth. Uh, we're also talking about a lot of other exciting developments with smart pumps, um, sure. integrated technologies, um, and new ideas uh, about way things might continue to develop. Okay. Maybe just some examples of some recent projects that you've worked on that have had either like an interesting set of challenges that you've had to overcome or something that's real, just real excited about, a little bit different. Well, I guess I can start. I know I've worked on a couple projects that are very interesting. Everybody knows the, the Sears Tower, Willis Tower, yeah, whatever yeah, you want to call yeah. it, Tower. Uh, we still call it the Sears Tower in Chicago and probably will forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, they recently did a remodel of the Sears Tower, um, so they're completely changing the bottom part, the pedestrian part of the uh, tower to make it more pedestrian friendly, give it more retail outlets, they're remodeling spaces within the building, upgrading a lot of the old equipment to make it more efficient. Um, And we provided all the pumps in that, that project, and it's just now, starting to kind of get going so if you listen to the podcast and you come to chicago go to the sears tower stand up in the glass booth so you can see what it looks like to be 70 stories in the air um and then walk around the building and enjoy the snow melts because it is chicago (laughs) (laughs) you should see at least that part uh one one interesting one that i'm in in the process of working on now is um a data center project so, you know, the, the Midwest is kind of a big data center hub, you know, where there's a lot in Illinois and close by. And uh, so this one, we, we've sold a uh, couple pumps, plate and frame heat exchanger from Bell & Gossett, where they're using Lake Michigan water to cool down the, the computers. So, so we've got pumps that are pulling water from the lake, running it through a heat exchanger, and then running that water to all their 
uh, equipment to cool everything down. So it's uh, it's a it's a little bit different. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is uh, just the first part. There's there's I believe seven phases to it. So it's just as the data center continues to expand, they're just going to keep growing and adding more like stations of pumps and wow. heat exchangers uh, wow. to expand. It's using it, so. your local resources. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So but there's a lot of challenges involved when you start doing that because Lake Michigan water is not the cleanest right. all the time, and you know then it, the temperature swings. So you know it's it's pretty tricky in how you gotta get the water from a certain depth to make sure it's cold enough, and you gotta filter it to make sure the pumps are okay. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's wow. a lot going on with it. It's it's also kind of cool because. You know, BNG reps all have an organization called the FHRA, Fluid Handling Rep Association. And this project was actually engineered out of the Atlanta area. So we were working with the rep out there, James Pleasance, in order to kind of put a whole package together, even though the project is uh, here in Illinois. So we actually worked together on some things where they would have a product line we didn't have or vice versa, and the whole project came together to get successfully installed. Oh, that's nice. You guys are in the, the airport renovation bandwagon as well, right? Because O'Hare's yep. going, undergoing some major upgrades yep. right now. So I feel like that's been happening for several years already. I feel like O'Hare's always got something going on. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. The last uh, project we did was um, a central plant upgrade. Okay. And it really kind of uh, revolved around the upgrade of the cooling towers. There are Marley cooling towers there. That's another line we handle. And so while they were doing that, they also changed the chillers. They changed the pumps themselves. So we have some, I think, 1,200 horsepower uh, VSC series pumps down there. Right. Um, wasn't it something like 40 or 48 pumps in total, all VSXs? Yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot of pumps. And so now, um, you know, Terminal, the new Terminal, Terminal 5, I guess they're going to call it, even though we have yeah. a Terminal 5. <laughs> um, <laughs> new Terminal 5. Right, but there's going to be a new Terminal going in, and, uh, and that, that'll be kind of a substantial project. And also, I think American Airlines recently updated their terminals, and so there was kind of work going on there, and then... Uh, another job we're hoping to participate in, we haven't heard anything officially yet, is the Obama Library. Oh. Uh, because that's going on on the south side of Chicago and kind of a opportunity zone and we're hoping that it ex you know, kind of expands and enriches part of the neighborhood down there, which is definitely, you know, has a huge long history in Chicago, but only, you know, recently maybe a more hopeful history. That's good. Hmm. So because of your proximity to Bell and Gossett and Morton Grove and also your, your longevity as, as a rep, um, how important is education and continuing education to, to Bornquist in terms of, you know, you two just personally and then in, from a company perspective as well? Well, it's incredibly important. I mean, we have a huge advantage over other BNG reps, sure. but, but even our competitors, because the Little Red Schoolhouse is literally in our backyard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's right down the street. Right. And so we can, we can send customers there because our customers, they don't have to fly in, they don't have to get a hotel, you know, they can just go there for the day and go home, mm -hmm. right? So we always have a pretty good contingent of customers for the Little Red Schoolhouse. I mean, we get 
people constantly asking us, all right, when's the next schedule coming out? What do you got? You know, we want to send people. Uh, I was just looking at the list the other day and we have like eight, nine, ten people signed up for every single class. Wow. And it's all our customers, right? And we, we do send our employees to some of them, you know, when they, when they need certain training, but mm -hmm. it's just, it's been going strong for years and hope it continues. <laughs> it's, it's a great resource. Yeah, sure. that was yeah. actually a design-build project that I did with one of my local contractors, Effie Moran. And so they were approached because Mike McCombie, the president of Effie Moran, had been a president of MCA, a president of ASHRAE. Um, and so we invited their company to come in um, because we were really trying to design a, a building that looked as much as possible like a commercial project, when yeah. in fact it's not. So it, it, it presented a lot of unique challenges, kind of scaling everything down, trying to present all the technologies that PNG offers in pumps. You'll see pretty much one of everything in the mechanical room there. I, I made sure of that. <laughs> um, as well as other products like boilers and cooling towers and things that are truly representative of the systems because although we talk a lot about pumps, we really focus on systems. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So you guys probably use it, the Little Red Schoolhouse, going to the classes and kind of in the more traditional way. You know, we've been talking to a lot of people today where they're trying to find new ways to reach people, you know, through YouTube videos or online webinars and stuff like that. But it sounds like you are still getting kind of the, the essence of the Little Red Schoolhouse. Right. Well, and, and like I said, because we're lucky to be local. Right. You know, it's, it's a big difference between a podcast or a, a webinar versus physically going there and touching it and seeing it. Mm -hmm. You know, because I could explain all day with PowerPoint slides how an expansion tank should be on the suction side and what happens if it's not. But when you take someone into Little Red Schoolhouse and they've got a tank valve to both sides and they can flip a valve and say, well, here's what happens. And everyone goes, oh, now I get it. You're like, you've been in the industry for five years <laughs> just now because you finally saw it's it. It's just that one minute right. that clicks in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's, you know, I've, I've had used it for private classes, right? I've gotten a hold of the schoolhouse and said, hey, I've got, you know, an engineering firm or a contractor that wants to do a specific class. What day are you free? And, you know, they're more than accommodating. You come in, have maybe, you know, seven, eight people and do our own little private class. And it's just, it's fantastic. Cool. That's not to say that we aren't doing the other things because, you know, communicating with customers is one of the biggest challenges we have as our customers continue to change. We renovated our website. We have a common tab on there for all the manufacturers, uh, sizing softwares that we represent. We, uh, you know, are more active on LinkedIn. We have a Facebook page. Um, we're actually hiring uh, a marketing person for the first time oh, um, to help us reach out to people. We're trying to do more and more education for all the product lines that, that we represent. Um, we, we find things are changing faster now than they ever have before. And as a relatively large rep firm, it's a real challenge to stay nimble with all those things. Sure. So then in light of all of that, are there any recent Bell & Gossett innovations that uh, have really supported you in that way. So like, we talked about system-wise earlier, but any other, you know, products or, or services that you think have been instrumental in kind of helping you 
stay abreast of that ever-evolving. Well, we're, we're seeing a few things under the broad description of communication. You know, if you go to Valangasset's website, you'll see that there are more and more non-schoolhouse-related educational programs that are available to look at online. Uh, more and more of the products are becoming smart products that often offer, say, Bluetooth communications. Um, uh, you guys are coming to the show and doing the podcast <laughs> with us so we can tell our yeah. story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, BNG continues to, uh, to help us out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But have you found it? I kind of you mentioned it's tough to stay nimble, but you know, even something like being active on LinkedIn. I guess, can you expand on why that's challenging, or you know, how that has kind of pushed you in a different way than not you, but as a company? You know, what has it made you think about in terms of like what do we have to put on LinkedIn? You know, or why are we doing it? I think a lot of it is just getting exposure to those customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you look at it now and, you know, there's commercials everywhere. I mean, what I don't know what the statistics are on how many messages people see every day. You know, it's thousands. And so it's just getting out there, you know, anything we can post. I mean, it can be as simple as, you know, we're at a job site and saw a pump installed and snap a picture and post that, you know, just to have our customers continually see you know, our products and Bornquist and Bell and Gossett. Mm-hmm. So it's just in, in their mind with all the other thousands of things, right? It can kind of keep it in the forefront. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, and that's probably because I'm an old guy, is, you know, I'm thinking about the appropriate balance of content. Because I don't, if I were somebody else, I wouldn't want to hear from me or see my posts on LinkedIn every five seconds. <laughs> You know, I would want to see it maybe once a week <laughs> with some meaningful content that I would look forward to seeing, you know, as opposed to pictures of my cat, you know, or something like that. I don't have a cat, but if I did. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it, the, the important thing is getting meaningful content to the people who are following you um, so they don't tune you out because mm-hmm. uh, just like annoying robocalls, you know, how often do you just not even answer your phone anymore because that contact isn't in there and you're just going to let it ring through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want our message to not just ring through. On our show, In the Field with Gould's Water Technology, the latest series covers tips and trainings for small business owners. Listen to all five episodes of the Small Business Toolbox series wherever you get your podcasts. advice would you give somebody so presumably this marketing person that you're looking for this candidate you know trying to get into this industry it can be a challenge just because of the complexity of it right technologically and and so forth what kind of advice do you have for somebody who's trying to get into this industry start a career here well there I mean construction if we want to call it construction as an opportunity is a huge market and construction means the same thing as like manufacturing or education or you know any any other broad category you want to present so you can be in construction and be in sales you can be in construction be in engineering you can be in construction and use your hands and do pipe fitting you can do and be in construction and do marketing or advertising uh, you can be in construction and being manufacturing. So there are all sorts of uh, 
opportunities within construction that there would be um, in, in other industries. What I think makes construction is a little different is that a lot of the people in construction ended up coming in at an entry level, right? Learning things the, the, the hard way and then progressing to you know senior positions in the industry sometimes with very impressive educations sometimes without you know that that component street smarts if you will and so i think there are there's a tremendous tremendous opportunity for upward mobility if you will within the construction industry because you don't need to have graduated from harvard to get respect did so either how, of you graduate from Harvard? <laughs> no, I no. do own a baseball cap from there. <laughs> we, we respect you. <laughs> no, that's a relatable message that you said. <laughs> how do you see the industry changing in Chicago in this year or coming years? I mean, we've talked about DOE 2020 a lot today, too, but just anything that sticks out. I'll let you take this one. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> So I, I'm, I'm actually looking at a lot of things that are sort of large trends that are, I guess, threats and opportunities in our market at the same time. And the, uh, the biggies, I guess, um, one of them is, uh, is decarbonization. You know, there's a lot of uh, willpower right now toward making um, our planet survivable for the near future <laughs> and, uh, and burning fewer fossil fuels in the process. And so Chicago is one of those cities that has some goals out there in order to uh, be carbon neutral um, or at least reduce uh, you know, their, their carbon footprint. So engineers design their buildings to still be usable 20 years from now. And so we see electrification in those buildings being a bigger and bigger deal. Um, another aspect is a shortage of skilled labor. Um, you know, we've our education system sort of evolved to the point where the successful outcome for a high school student was to go to college. It wasn't even necessarily to graduate from college, it was just to go to college. And so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the education uh, programs that were in place for people with more practical skills were kind of left behind. And, and the uh, baby boomers like me you know, as we age out of the industry, a lot of the people who are skilled laborers are, um, are leaving the market now. And our education system, at least not traditionally, isn't preparing um, a lot of those people for, for work. So I actually sit on an education council um, in Evanston, Illinois, where I live, and we're trying to uh, connect um, with people in high school so they come out of high school as better candidates and easier to educate to the next phase of whatever it is that they're looking for. And then finally, uh, modular construction. Okay. So um, modular construction is kind of building a, a building with Lego blocks almost. And these, uh, these rooms or sections come out with carpet and heating air conditioning systems and paint on the walls and you know, kitchen appliances and everything and they just drop into place like Lego blocks to, to build larger buildings. And I ask everyone, I'll ask you, how many of you are wearing handmade clothing? <laughs> Got any handmade clothing? I don't even know. <laughs> I wouldn't know, I mean, maybe I own one item. That maybe some jewelry that's yeah. handmade. <clears throat> 
Well, our construction process largely, at least uh, conventionally, is called stick-built construction. And that's where we take all the little pieces, like pieces of wood, you know, and we, and we put them together to make the walls and the roof and the shingles and the siding and even, you know, put the carpets in one at a time and everything else. We do that in certain order, right, according to the trades. Um, modular construction is where they do all that in a factory and then they move all those things to the job site and they crane those completed modules into place and they have you know buildings that can be erected with higher quality control standards over a shorter period of time with less exposure to safety risk with left, less exposure to risk like theft um, so uh, it's really interesting. I would think that the quality could, there, because there'd be, you know, less people involved to see, you know, to check things out at every stage. Just, it's just yeah, but they can stage. do better quality control because it isn't a factor, right? So they, you know, it's repeatability. Or you have the same guy doing the same thing at each stage in the process, right? And I think it's it's Henry Ford and the Model T. Yeah, hmm. I suppose. Right? But I also just, you know. It's, it's, in my head, I equate quality with the handmade, like the, that, you know, really double checking. And, but, and, you know, well, there there's are, processes in the factory that. Not every building is, is suitable for modular construction. Um, for example, if you need to put space in that needs to be reconfigurable, then mo modular construction isn't way to go. If you're installing large open areas like the one we're sitting in now, um, you know, you, modular construction isn't necessarily um, appropriate. But our hotel room, you know, that would be a real good one. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you see buildings that are maybe 80% modular and 20% stick-built construction. So they do the open areas like this and then they move on and they build the part that's, that's repeatable. And that's interesting. It makes sense why that would be appealing in a city like Chicago when you're building up a lot, right? Yeah. Well, and one of the challenges that modular construction had was kind of fighting the unions, right? Because now you're saying it's, it's not built in the field by union people, right? We're gonna build it in a factory somewhere. Hmm. Well, in Chicago, they have uh, Skender, right? They, uh, they have a factory in the city that they're using union laborers in the factory to build the modular pieces. So they've sort of addressed that concern. So now the unions are like, this is fine with us. Right, so that's that's a big game changer. Sure, right? sure. It also helps the unions with diversity for their own workforce. Yeah. Because a lot of the skilled laborer, baby boomer people, you know, are not very diverse. They're kind of what you might expect, stereotypical in a way. Um, and so now, you know, if the people who work in that factory are from those, the, the, um, the neighborhood, because this particular factory is in an opportunity zone, um, you know, you get a more diverse workforce, um, you know, advantages that are uh, not what, not just inside the building. Sure, sure. So who makes the decision to use modular versus the stick built construction? Typically the owner or general contractor would. Okay. Um, this point um, it's still not a prevalent method um, but if you look at how many people were wearing handmade clothing a hundred years ago and how many people are now 
you'd have uh, you know a very different answer. Sure. I remember my mom made my sister jeans one time, and she was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> She that was a teenager. A <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> That's the thought that counts. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we wrap up here, um, I just wanted to. We made an announcement earlier today about the Watermark 2020 program, and you know it's important at Xylem to to start to spread that message even further, and I know that. Um, the Bell and Gossett manufacturers reps have really kind of picked up that challenge into, you know, um, helping solve water in the communities. And so, just want to get your thoughts on that announcement. You know, if you're looking for what you're looking forward to in terms of the year ahead. Well, we were one of the first manufacturers reps to participate in a watermark event. So we went. I think we started like at a Buddhist temple, um, you know, which is on the near north side of the city. And then we were carrying water, which replicated the journey of uh, African children, mostly women, who would be responsible for going to get the water and walking back. So it was like a three-mile walk, you know, that we walked to the lakefront, and like a three-mile walk back, and we had to carry water the whole time. And I couldn't keep it on my head, like I think they do. But um, but we were but we were uh, walking and. To me, um, I mean, certainly understand the need for clean water, and, and I absolutely uh, support that. But to me, the remarkable thing were the things that were sort of peripheral to that. Uh, for example, I don't think people would know that because the young women in the African uh, villages are going to get the water and it takes a long time, they miss out on their chance to get educated. They don't have time for school anymore. Um, so it's very interesting to me, there's the obvious clean water and then there's less obvious education. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are other factors as well, but I think uh, that was really the lasting you know, impact to me so far. Um, and I know that locally Bellingosset does some river cleanup things and lake cleanup things. And I would imagine that that, that would be the next thing that we would uh, participate in once it gets warm enough that you can pull the garbage out of the ice. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the first thing. So that should be sometime yeah. in mid-July, basically. <laughs> but that's cool. I mean, you guys have been into this even before, you know, as Xylem has ramped it up on their end, the Watermark program. You, Bornquist has kind of already been ready to go with that. Yeah, we learned about it first when we were at the FHRA meeting, that previous rep association that I mentioned, and Xylem uh, brought out a replica of the water tower that they use to do filtration and water supply for some of the um, underserved communities, you know, they go visit. And so we got to actually, you know, get on the pipe, to, on the pump, on the bike, excuse me, to operate the pump to make the whole thing work. And yeah. we helped to wreck the tower. And uh, Ken Napolitano was there, and you know, all sorts of other exciting people, um, you know, to, to learn about um, more about the watermark. And so when we got home, um, we wanted to support that as best we could. Sounds like you're already doing some awesome stuff, and we look forward to a great rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Thanks for, for asking us. us. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> the Solving Water Podcast is produced and distributed by Xylem.
a global water technology company of more than 16,000 employees committed to solving critical water and infrastructure challenges worldwide. Stream, download, and subscribe 